Hi there. You're listening to the Paralegals on Fire podcast show, where you'll be getting tips and actionable strategies that you can use right now to fast track your paralegal career. I'm your host, Ann Pearson, former paralegal and paralegal manager who left big law in the concrete jungle to start my own company, the Paralegal Bootcamp, where we give online courses that help paralegals make more money, increase their job security, and cut out the learning curve. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Linda Odermott, a paralegal who is certified through NIFPA, and she's an Oregon certified paralegal. In addition to working her day job as a paralegal, she's also an adjunct paralegal instructor at Portland Community College, but it doesn't stop there. She's received the Paralegal of the Year Award from the Oregon Paralegal Association, not once, but twice. And she's received the Paralegal Certification Ambassador Award from NIFBA from the work that she's done to help others pass their certification exam. I met Linda on LinkedIn when I came across a post that she shared a couple of weeks ago about the Oregon Supreme Court voting to approve the licensed paralegal program. It's supposed to go into effect July 1st, 2023. Linda was part of a group that worked on that for years to get that accomplished. And she's here today to talk about that and what this could mean for the paralegal profession. So first, I'd like to thank you, Linda, for what you are doing for the paralegal profession and for taking the time to join me here today. Thanks so much, Anne, for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here and have this conversation. Well, before we get into the details of how this was accomplished, let me start by asking, how do you think paralegal licensing programs benefit paralegals and the profession as a whole? Well, and along those same lines, let's make this a three-part question. How does it also benefit the community? Well, that's a great place to start. I think the first thing that I would say for paralegals specifically is by definition, we are helpers. Like we all have all come into the legal profession in one way or another because we want to help. We, we want to be of benefit, whether it's to our attorneys or our firm or our employers or to our clients, right? The people that we serve. And this is another way that we can do that, specifically and directly helping the public. I think it also gives us a different avenue for our careers, a way to grow and change and evolve. Our profession has always been one of evolving as the profession has grown. And I think this just gives us another new way to evolve. And job fulfillment. Uh, I think all of us have have experienced in one way or another where we've maxed out with our firm or or our job, where there's maybe not a way to grow uh, and do more. And I think this does that for us. And it allows us some flexibility and freedom over our and control over our own careers, right? Also for the profession. I think the important element that we have to consider is we've been striving to create standards for the profession for a long time. We started out looking at, you know, regulation. Could we get some regulation in place to to define what a paralegal is or what their role is? And then we worked on voluntary certification as a way and a means and mechanism to do that. And now this these licensing efforts in a way, is a de facto paralegal standards rollout. Because by saying these are the standards we expect a paralegal to know or be able to do 
we're saying that is what a paralegal is before we look at whether they or not they can get licensed. I think the other piece of that is it builds respect for the paralegal profession. We have been, nobody knows what we are <laughs> except us, which is um, a little, little weird for me to say, but it, I think it's true. When you ask an attorney what they do, I mean, they have, you, you, we've all seen that meme where this is what my mom thinks I do. This is what my family thinks I do. This is what my, you know, my spouse thinks I do. And this is what I actually do. And I think that is apropos for this situation. By having these standards, by having a a starting point, we build in value for our profession. We build in respect for our profession. There was a lot of conversation or in in the different jurisdictions that are rolling out these programs, there's, there's been some opposition by attorneys who maybe didn't read the proposals or didn't understand what these programs are designed to do. And, and I can't tell you how some of the, the comments kind of cut me to the core, but they were statements like paralegals aren't qualified to even answer my phone, let alone do these, get these licenses. Oh my or, God, I'm cringing. I'm cringing right now. I know. Or the public needs to be t- protected from these bad actors who will um, take advantage of the general public. Or what was another one? There was one other one that says, these paralegals are not ethical enough to do these to take on this role. And I can't even tell you how devaluing, how demoralizing it was to hear this from attorneys that we work side by side with on the daily basis, right? And I think it also gives us a seat at the table because we haven't had input on what paralegals can and should do. And by Rolling out these licensed programs, it brings us to the seat so we can talk about what do we think is ethical? What do we think the requirements are? What do we see the vision is for the longevity of the profession and the evolution of the profession? You know what? That reminds me, the attorney thing that you just brought up. Because I knew that we were going to be doing this interview, I came across a LinkedIn post just last week. Oh, actually, it's Friday. Because what I did is I took a screenshot of it. It was Friday at 6.02 p.m. that I took a screenshot. And the reason I did is because I knew we were going to be talking about this issue. It was a post from someone else. I don't know who it was, but it was about paralegal licensing. I don't think it was about Oregon, but this was someone saying, I'm just going to read a little bit of the post for people who probably didn't see it. So this paralegal is having a conversation with an attorney about paralegal licensing, and the attorney was saying things similar to what you just said. And she writes, in the conversation that we had, he admitted that an elitist culture permeates the legal profession that would rather see people with limited means struggle with basic needs, e.g. domestic violence protection, divorce, child custody, housing, etc., than give up control slash ownership of legal services delivery. He said the indoctrination starts in law school. Mm. Yeah, I saw that and I thought, wow, I've got to save that for the podcast interview. Well, it actually gave me chills because that's so dead on accurate. And I think, you know, we saw this same situation when nurse practitioners were trying to get licensing in the medical profession. And there was opposition from the doctors who had kind of that same monopoly over the practice of medicine. And so we see this 
kind of duality coming into our own licensing efforts that's just trying to benefit the public and get help to those that need it the most. And that buying against that, we want to protect what we have from an attorney perspective. I think, and to that point, one of the other things that I would maybe mention is that all of these different jurisdictions are coming at this from different viewpoints and they're having different elements or requirements for all of their programs. But one thing that they have agreed on consistently across the board is that there has to be standards for the profession of these new license, this new legal profession that includes experience and education and a competency assessment, right? So even if we take out all of the arguments against it, we're still saying, here's the standards that we have to have in order to move forward, irrespective of the arguments about whether or not this will impact attorneys and their, you know, how much they make or how much they can charge or those kinds of issues. Right. Maybe. Because, well, in yeah. the comments of that post, I, I, I don't have the whole thing pulled up, but I remember one of the comments was something along the lines of, well, there are people that you wouldn't want to represent anyways, because they can't afford you in this, <laughs> you know, and that would be even at a 250, I couldn't even imagine if you're in a city, you know, and you've got a $500 billable hour. A lot of people can't afford that for things like child custody and landlord tenant issues. Yeah, that's a good point too, Anne. And that goes back to your original question that I don't think I hit on is that benefit of the community. You know, over 70% of civil and family cases include a party that doesn't have a lawyer in across the country, 70%. And so accessibility to low-cost legal services for our underserved population has to be our priority if we're actually going to have a justice system that meets the needs of our population. And I don't know that we've talked about this, but lawyers and the courts have a trust issue. The general public either doesn't trust them or they can't find them, right? Ones that will fit their need. One of the things that Oregon did specifically, and I can only speak to a lot of what Oregon did because obviously I was on their committee, but we they contracted with um, a media company. Laura Media was the one that that Oregon used, and they did surveys and focus groups to ask the general public what do they want, what do they see they that they need in this kind of a program. And eighty four percent of the people that they surveyed said if they needed a lawyer, they couldn't find one or they couldn't obtain one either because they couldn't afford one or they didn't know where to find them. And then 80% of those surveyed said they would be more open to consulting with an attorney after they worked with a licensed professional than they before, because they just didn't trust them. Um, wow. Got, that's huge numbers in my book. I'm, but when we look at these proposals, the bars aren't listening necessarily or reaching out to the general public. They're only listening to the attorneys. And so that goes back to that monopoly that we're talking about. Participants also felt that racial discrimination is embedded in our legal system. And that's not surprising, but it's just surprising that they actually said it to us, right? And then the other piece is they know that they can't afford it and they don't have enough information to go find it. In fact, one of the comments that was super surprising is that most of the, the survey respondents didn't know what the state bar did or how to find resources there. 
Yeah, I could see that. If you were just a lay person, how would you know that you could go to the Florida bar and maybe get a referral for an attorney? Or file yeah. a complaint against the attorney. Yeah, good point. Right. Yeah. Well, so let me play the devil's advocate for a minute then. So in terms of the community benefiting and not getting access to justice, why not take that money that was spent getting this approved in Oregon and just increase the money that goes to legal aid? Great question. And we've we've looked at that. And I'm actually going to quote one of my favorite co-patriots in the access to justice fight. Justice Dino Jimenez, um, he just recently retired from the Utah Supreme Court, and he had the best quote for me um, on this topic. Justice Jimenez said, we cannot volunteer ourselves across the access to justice gap. We have spent billions of dollars trying this approach. It hasn't worked. And hammering away at the problem with the same tools is Einstein's very definition of insanity. What is needed is a market-based approach that simultaneously respects and protects consumer needs. We have tried legal aid. We have tried all of these programs and throwing money on it, and it doesn't work. I think the last time I saw numbers, every attorney licensed in in the country would have to do 150 hours of pro bono work in order to address all of the, the access to justice needs. And many attorneys barely do too. Wait, 150 hours per year? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. So pro bono is out. Legal aid is out. I mean, I, I think we have to look at this as another tool in a toolbox. I don't think there's one answer to address the access to justice issue. I think that we have to look at this as a holistic approach. We have to look at it as Licensed paralegal programs are one tool that will help address some of these needs. But we also have to look at the courts, you know, having online forms, having help at the courthouse, legal aid, the court navigator program that's in New York, or even so many different options that we have to look at holistically to address access to justice. But this is just one. I like that. Yeah, it is. It's just one tool instead of attorneys looking at it like it's competition. Yeah. Well, so I want to go back, circle back, because you mentioned, I just wrote down the the word regulation. You mentioned regulation. And I did want to touch on that just a little bit more because I'm going to be honest, I did a Google search this morning just to make sure that I was still seeing the same results because you know how your Google search results can change for the algorithm. But when I do a Google search for the words paralegal regulation, which a lot of people are are or were opposed to because they think it's going to regulate them in some way. Mm-hmm. What comes up are articles about the states that have these licensing programs. And so for those who maybe haven't been following what the other states have been doing with licensing, can you clear up the confusion about licensing versus regulation and what yeah. that is? You're right. There's so much confusion. (laughs) Regulation was a movement that was happening many years ago in the profession where we were trying to create those standards, right? For paralegals. We were trying to have some kind of, this is what it means to be a paralegal, or these are the guidelines, or these are the competencies we want, but those efforts didn't go very far. And so uh, we didn't see any kind of state specific 
necessarily uh, regulation that rolled out. And we know regulation would come from, you know, our laws or or our um, statutes that say X, Y, Z, or from state bar rules that say who can practice law or what that looks like. And so the attorneys weren't really excited about that because right now, if you look at it, and any any attorney can call any person a paralegal, regardless of education, experience, training, any of those things, which again, probably plays a little into that monopoly that we were talking about and how much we can charge and what for. Mm-hmm. But then the paralegal profession tried to look towards that certification, the voluntary certification as a, a different way to get to some kind of standard. So you saw these rollout of different certification exams by state or um, national paralegal associations that were trying to get to the standard level of whatever that is. And so that created even more confusion because we have all these different certifications and what do they mean and what do they do and what are they for? And all these credential letters after your name, but nobody knows what they mean. (laughs) But that is different than paralegal licensing because licensing means the same as for an attorney where the state bar issues licenses to practice law, usually under their Supreme Court, but maybe not, who administers the practice of law, right, or oversees the practice of law. And so those licenses means that they have to meet certain requirements. They have to renew those uh, licenses. They're under the authority for discipline or complaints. They can be, have those licenses revoked. So there's authority and control over those licensing, which we haven't had over the profession at all ever. And regulation would mean it's mandated and licensing licensing means it's optional. You do not have to get a license. You can be a paralegal and still work for your attorney and still do all the things you already do right now. But with a license, it's limited in scope. It's limited in practice. And there are other elements that you have to complete or do in order to maintain that license. Okay. So that, that clears it up a lot for me. It's essentially where you're given the license to practice law in a very small area versus, so it's above and beyond what your role could be as a paralegal working under the supervision of an attorney. Well, it could be. (laughs) I think it could be above and beyond in that limited scope. But I also believe a paralegal now has a lot more freedom to do things because they're under the supervision of an attorney, if that makes sense. Because a paralegal, me, I can do legal research and legal writing, and I can provide recommendations to my attorney about a proposal. I can do all of this work, drafting motions and pleadings and all of these things. Whereas in that license, I am specifically limited to the scope or practice area or actions that the state bar has told me I can do. Okay. Well, and what kind of things are they in your state? We'll only stick with that, obviously. Sure. So we have two practice areas in Oregon that the Supreme Court just approved, which was landlord-tenant law, as well as family law. And so in family law, for example, uncontested divorces, child support payment uh, forms, domestic relation forms. So very limited scope in that area. And then for landlord tenant, for example, only representing 
the tenants <laughs> because we know the landlords can have representatives or in eviction matters, for example. So very specific, very limited actionable items, selecting forms. Uh, they cannot appear in court, for example, except as a support person. They cannot present a case or or um, on behalf of their client in the case, but they can be there in support of their client. Well, none of those things that you listed sound like anything that an attorney would want to do or wouldn't they wouldn't be able to bill very much for it. So I don't understand what the problem would be. Uh, that is has been the running conversation. But I think one of the concerns has always been that that scope creep, you know, where mm. if we start letting, you know, paralegals do these specific things, they'll come for more, right? And that that um, knee-jerk response of, well, we can't let them have anything because then they want everything. Okay. Okay. So I know this has been a long time in the making in Oregon. Can you tell us what the process was for you and your team? And well, tell me the name of your team too, because uh, I have it written down, but it's a mouthful. Uh, what you and your team did to get this licensing program decision to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. So the start is, uh, it's the Oregon State Bar's Paraprofessional Licensing Implementation Committee, which we called PLIC for short because it is a mouthful. And what we did, so Oregon's journey on this road is actually a long time coming. They started looking at licensing paralegals um, in the 80s. They had some hearings and they um, rolled out a recommendation that, you know, we should have licensed paralegals. And then that kind of um, went to committee and, and kind of sat for a long time and nothing happened. But a lot of things started to move when Washington rolled out their triple LT program, limited licensed legal technicians, and states started doing civil needs assessments to find out. We already knew the access to justice issue was a huge gap, but now we had more data that confirmed that what we were we already knew, and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So uh, the Oregon State Bar started a work group back in 2012, I believe, where they were looking at licensing paralegals again, and they looked back at the work they had already done previously. And, but brought it up to current standards and, and talked about those civil access studies that were done and Oregon specifically did one. And we said, yes, this still makes sense. Yes, we still recommend that licensed paralegals is a good idea. That prompted the state bar to create an implement um, a futures task force, which they were looking at what does the legal profession look like into the future and how do we move forward in a bunch of different areas. And I think that was that holistic approach that we were talking about earlier, where what elements of the legal profession need to evolve. And I think that was talking about AI and the use of AI and the use of technology in providing legal services, the access to legal forms on the court websites, having court facilitators at the courthouse that can assist with filling out forms, all of those things. And licensing paralegals was one work group, sub work group within that committee. And we again recommended that licensed paralegal program be rolled out. And the state bar 
bless their hearts, they've had the vision to approve that report and accept that report. And they started an implementation committee about two years ago to write the rules for that licensing paralegal program. So fast forward two years, (laughs) two more years, and we have rolled written the rules. We've done the research. We've looked at all the other jurisdictions that were working on a licensed paralegal proposal. We looked at Ontario, who's had licensed paralegals since 2007, and they currently have 3,700 active paralegals in their program. And we said, what makes sense for Oregon? And we wrote those rules. We had enormous amount of input from the general public, which I mentioned, the Laura Media Survey, but we also opened every single one of our meetings to the public. Anyone could come and participate and listen. And we also had a large advisory committee where we called on experts in different areas, such as our community colleges, our law schools, our underserved populations. And we said, please help us figure this out. Um, legal aid, all of them. And I th- I want to say we had close to 30, maybe more in that advisory committee. And then we regularly updated not only the Oregon State Bar on what we were doing and our drafts, but we also submitted regular reports to the Oregon Supreme Court who would ultimately make the decision on the proposal. And thankfully, the State Bar approved our our proposal and then so did the Supreme Court. Well, congratulations. I mean, that was no small feat, I got to say. What was it like when you got the, were you, did you get a phone call? Did you get it by email? I mean, it must have been kind of emotional for you to follow something like that for so long. I actually went to the Supreme Court's uh, meeting on the, in person. (laughs) Many of our committee was on Zoom. And so, um, but I was there, uh, there was just a handful of us who were there in person And once they had unanimously, by the way, unanimously, all of the justices voted to approve the program and roll it out. I I do have to tell you, I got emotional and I'm getting emotional now. It is a big deal. It's monumental, not only for our profession, but for, for the legal justice system and for those people who are not getting their needs served now. I think we will definitely have an impact going forward. And I just applaud the Supreme Court of Oregon and the state bar and all the staff members in our committee who worked tirelessly to get this through because it took a village to be sure. Uh, There's going to be so many people listening right now who you have just inspired into action. Linda, I can I can guarantee you like they're just going to listen to this and say, I want to be like Linda. (laughs) I want to do what Linda's doing. It's it's a beautiful thing what you've you've left a legacy to the paralegal profession and I want to personally thank you. Thank you so much Anne. So for the people who are listening and maybe thinking that, you know, she's kind of inspired me to look into what I might want to get started in my state. Do you have any advice or where where do they get started? How do they participate? Absolutely. My first recommendation is do your research. Find out if there are any efforts in your jurisdiction happening right now, because chances are there are, and you would be surprised. The other thing is, if you find out that there's something happening, get your voice heard, whether that's asking to be part of the conversation, starting to attend those meetings, 
writing letters in support of a proposal, and reaching out to the people that you already see leading those efforts, because that will help you kind of get into the mix, right? I would also say there's a couple of different avenues for how that looks. Maybe it's your local paralegal association, asking your paralegal association to write those letters in support. More voices, the better, right? If they're not willing to do it, do it on your own. It's okay. You don't need everyone to be on the same side. It's okay. I think the other one is the National Paralegal Associations, which there's a couple of options, but getting them to write letters in support or to participate in in your jurisdiction specifically, because again, the more voices, the better. I think too, the state bar is a huge asset, no matter what you do. If you're participating with an another jurisdiction that's already working on it, or if they haven't started, you have to start working with your state bar because they cannot be against you. You have to be aligned. So having those conversations and looking to see if your state bar did an access to justice study, or do they have a needs assessment done? And if not, I've got a resource for you. It's IELTS is a great resource. And they are the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. And they have rolled out what they're calling the Allied Legal Professionals Initiative. And they they did a study in 2021. It's called the Justice Needs and Satisfaction Survey. And that survey tells you all the things you need to know about the gap in access to justice. So, and I'll share that link with you if you'd like. Yeah, I would love that. I'll put it in the show notes. So IELTS has done a couple of different things with their Allied Legal Professional Initiative. Their goal is to broaden the understanding of the existing and proposed legal paraprofessional programs across the U.S. and in other countries and the relative advantages and challenges that exist within them. They also want to develop a national model for these allied legal professionals based on the best practices and their research, which can be implemented in those states. And then they also want to establish best practices such as by analyzing existing programs, looking at empirical research, and comparing the existing programs from other programs like nurse practitioners. How did they do it? What were their best practices? And then creating those frameworks and models for states to follow to implement them. So all those are awesome. But the last two things I will mention is judges. The judges are your key because they are on the front line having to educate and assist these pro bono and pro se litigants. So it's backlogging their courts. It's backlogging their dockets. They take so much of their own time to help these individuals through the process. And they are your allies. They will help you navigate this and and their voices count. (laughs) Not to say that paralegals aren't important, but a judge coming to the table and saying the same thing as a paralegal adds weight, right? Then I would also say you need data. Look to the jurisdictions who have already rolled out these types of programs. Ontario, who I mentioned earlier, Washington, Utah, Arizona, and now Oregon. And there are many other jurisdictions who are looking to roll out these programs, such as I just heard Colorado is looking to start an implementation committee. So look to them. And then the last thing I want to just call out is a risk assessment discussion about numbers of complaints of existing programs. ALPS is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance. 
and they analyzed the insurability risk and claims of licensed paralegal programs specifically for Oregon. And what they said was that they dimmed the overall risk among paraprofessional communities to be low because of the limited scope, the education and experience requirements, even going so far to say, in many respects, the licensing, education, and experience requirements of these paraprofessionals, along with the limited scope, position them as more ready to engage in professional services and better risk than graduating law students passing the bar and hanging up shingle as a sole practitioner. They analyzed all of these complaints that they got from attorneys, about attorneys, comparing those against these LPs, licensed paralegals, and they said their claims experience supported their data and their analysis because they hadn't received very many and they hadn't paid any claims out on these complaints. I like that. So that was, that's a solid plan. If you're listening, go back when you have a chance with maybe you're walking, maybe you're riding your bike or driving to work and, and you want to do something like what Linda and her team have done, then write down all of those things. Because if you work for lawyers, you know, right? If you're going to make your case, you've got to have the data. So the risk assessment, the numbers, get the judges as part of your ally, write all those things down as a checklist, and then find out who might already be starting something in your state that maybe you don't know about yet. But wow, Linda, that was a, that's our actual strategies for today. (laughs) There are a lot though. So take them in bite-sized pieces because, you know, I think one of the things you have to consider if you're starting to look at this is it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is, it's going to take a minute. Or 10 years. Or 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, maybe though, some of the work that you and some of the other states have done will speed up the process and help these other states get them through quicker. Yeah. And I I think too, you know, as as much as I've kind of knocked attorneys today, there are attorney allies. Let me be very clear. The attorneys that worked on our committee were fully engaged, fully informed, fully supportive. Our state bar was fully engaged, fully supportive, and offered great changes and recommendations by being critical and looking at our proposals. So don't overlook your attorneys as your allies too, because they don't know what they don't know, and it'll take education by you to get them there. That's really good advice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for taking extra time with me today. I know we kept on a little bit longer than normal, but this is such an important topic. And, you know, I want to thank you again, Linda, truly for everything that you're doing for the paralegal profession. It was such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. And and uh, thank you to your listeners who are listening and, and may or may not be inspired by the conversation. <laughs> I'm sure they will. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're listening. And please take a quick minute and leave a review of the podcast and share this episode with just one colleague or friend who you think would benefit from what we discussed today. Share the knowledge and the entire paralegal profession elevates. See you next week. Bye for now.